Christmas. We're continuing in a series about kind of who we are as Bethany called Gather, Grow, Go, because those are basically the three things that we want to be about, gathering as a community, growing, and going. Only we this year have chosen to do that in reverse order. So last week was Go, and we had a little video called Pastors uh, in Cars Getting Coffee, and that's available online if you're interested in looking at that or... uh, Online is actually the extended version in a way because we we filmed the 7 p.m. and we don't have to rush anyone out. So if you want to hear more, like like the director's cut or something, it's on it's on our website at uh, churchpcc.org. Uh, and then next week we'll be looking at grow, but uh, today excuse me uh, gather. But today we're looking at grow. Okay, so let's just take a moment. We'll pray together and then we'll open the scriptures. Father, thanks. For the beauty of the day, thank you for the change of seasons, and thank you for the opportunity that we have to listen for your voice and be shaped by you to be people of hope in our world. And that's indeed our prayer in these moments. Teach us and give us responsive hearts. In order, Father, that in a world increasingly characterized by fear and anxiety and anger, nothing less than your life would pour into our city and our neighborhoods and our schools and our, and our hospitals and our offices and ultimately into our world. That's our prayer, Father. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. How many of you know a little bit about the life cycle of a salmon in here? Anybody? Know a little bit? Some, you can raise your hand if you know a little bit. Yeah, this is just like I spoke last week at a black church. I'm going to be expecting much more responsiveness from you from now on. <laughs> No longer can you behave like Scandinavians. I'm going to pull it out of you. Um, so if you, know, <laughs> if you know a little bit about the life cycle, then you, you may know this, but when a salmon spawns upstream and ultimately lays her eggs, she lays about 3,000 eggs. So there's 3,000 potential lives. Of those 3,000, only 810 ultimately hatch. So over two-thirds of them uh, are never really born and then of those 810, what are called fry, the tiny salmon, the small fry, um, though, like only 81 of those actually make it out into salt water. So we started with 3,000, now we're down to 81. Of the 81 who make it out into the ocean, only five or six of those attain to adulthood. And of the, fi- of the five or six who attain to adulthood, only one or two return ultimately to, to spawn again. So there's a bunch of potential life, but not a lot of... Uh, Full life, if I can say it that way. And this, this is uh, reminiscent or illustrative of what the Bible says about Christ's followers as well. We begin, many of us begin. The question isn't how many begin. The question is how many when you're 70, 80, 90 are still passionately in love with Jesus, still eager to serve, still using your gifts, still filled with hope. And the answer in the Bible is surprisingly few, actually. Over and over again, you see this. You see, of course, the parable of the seed and the sower, which is reminiscent of the salmon thing, or this redwood tree here. If you are in a redwood forest, there are hundreds of thousands of seeds covering the floor in in cones. Only a few ultimately become trees, and of those that become trees, only very few reach maturity. And in the parable of the seed and the sower, you see similarly, right? Uh, Hey, the sower sowed seed, and the seed is, is, is the gospel, and some fell on a road and never sprung to life. Others sprung to life, but they were choked out by roots and thorns. 
Others sprung to life, but they were choked out by rocks, and those represent various things. And then only a few, actually, went on to maturity so that they began bearing fruit, right? Letters to seven churches in the book of Revelation. There's seven churches. John writes to each one under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, words from Christ. Six of them are condemned. One receives affirmation. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10 speaks of uh, the children of Israel leaving slavery in in, uh, Egypt and traveling through the wilderness. God's intent was that the two million who left would enter into the promised land, right? And it says of the two million that left, how many went into the promised land? Does anyone know? Does anyone know? (laughs) Two, right? Only two made it in out of two million who left. And Jesus says in Luke 18, when the Son of Man returns, will he find any faith at all on the earth? It's kind of a rhetorical question. I think Jesus was having a bad day, and he's wondering, man, will will anyone continue on? Will anyone continue on? So what does it mean to continue on? How do you continue on? That's uh, the point this morning. And so we're, to understand this, we need to understand that maturity in Christ is this lifelong process of transformation whereby all three parts of us are transformed, spirit, soul, and body. That's why I'm wearing this clothing this morning. It says right here, body, soul, spirit. This is one of the Bible schools I teach at in Austria, and they're big into this. And I want to share with you this morning how every one of these, this is an ecosystem, and every one is in need of ongoing transformation, spirit, soul, and body. So we're going to look at that, and we're going to begin with the spirit, which is like in the very deepest inner part of you. And here's the first statement. Like in your bulletin, it, it says our spirits grow by, and then dot, 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 it should be a blank. So Because I want you to fill it in, right? Our spirits grow by receiving the risen Christ. How does your spirit grow? By receiving the risen Christ. You have to receive Christ. Jesus said it, John 3, to Nicodemus. Hey, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you must be what? Born again. You have to be. There's no other way in. You have to be born again. And what happens when you're born again is this, Colossians 1.27, the risen Jesus now takes up residence and Jesus' spirit is commingled with your human spirit so that you become a, a brand new person right? That's what it means to be born again. You're now a, a different person by virtue of the fact that Christ lives now not beside you walking with as a coach or a motivational speaker or a guru, but Christ lives in you. And so Christ in you, his spirit uh, commingled with your spirit is what ultimately is the source of every bit of transformation in your life. It all starts there. And, and, and God's desire then is that you would be so filled with nothing less than the life of God, that you fulfill your calling from Genesis 1 as an image bearer. You're displaying to the world at Amazon, in schools, in hospitals, at home, with friends, with neighbors, with family. You're displaying the joy, the hope, the wisdom, the mercy of Jesus. That's your calling. Now, of course, many of us in the room know that that was God's design all the way back. God made humans in God's image, Genesis chapter 1. But then we know also from the early story of Genesis that sin enters into the story. And the typical articulation of the sin problem is this. Uh, The bad news is that now that you've sinned, you're cut off from God, and you're going to be cut off from God for eternity. So if you die tonight, you're going to go to hell. But the good news is Christ died to pay the penalty for your failure. So now when God sees you, God doesn't actually see you anymore. Somehow you're magically clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So you kind of have on this Jesus cloth, and God sees now, not the, all the yucky stuff, but he sees the Jesus cloth, so God's not mad anymore because when, he, when God looks at you, he's not really seeing you, he's seeing Jesus, and so now God loves you, but only because you're wearing Jesus cloth. Now, I'm going to just say to you, um, and I'm being polite, that's rubbish, 
okay? Like that is not the gospel. It may be what you've heard before, but the problem with it isn't that there's zero truth in it. The problem is it's a truncated gospel. It's a message in a sense of justification only, but the result of this message, this truncated gospel, is that you're still a sinner, but God has magically forgiven you somehow because of what Christ did. And theologians debate exactly why God has forgiven you, but whatever, you're forgiven. So now you're going to continue to struggle the rest of your life with, you know, lust, addiction, body image issues, anger, materialism, individualism, kind of shame-based fear of sex, uh, where you, like you, you, you did it and now you're, you're, you hate yourself, or fear-based avoidance of sex, you'll be filled with lust, addiction, materialism, all this stuff, self-medicating your way through the stresses of life, lying, anger. No. This, isn't, this is not the gospel. So, but, but in this iteration, salvation means, look, you're really messed up. That's the bad news, but God loves you anyway. That's the good news because all of God's hatred of you was poured out on Jesus. Now let's just listen to what the words of Jesus are regarding his invitation. I have come, this is Jesus, John uh, 10. I have come that you might struggle privately for the rest of your life with sin and then die as a miserable failure but wake up surprised that you're in heaven anyway because you're wearing Jesus cloth. That's not what Jesus said. You know it. I've come that you might have. Let's try it again. We're a black church. I've come that you might have. Yeah, man. See, that you might have life. And not only life, but life more abundantly that you might really begin for the first time ever to live now a life of joy and self-confidence and hope and peace and mercy and sacrificial love. That's why I came. John 7, are you thirsty? Come to me. I'll give you just enough water to get into heaven, but not enough to transform you. No. Come to me and... You know, rivers of living water are going to burst out of your stomach so that in a thirsty world, you become a source of life. Wow, that sounds appealing. Paul, what did Paul say, 2 Corinthians 5, 17? If anyone is in Christ, this person in Christ is now a what? New creation, utterly other than who you were before. So what has changed? It, all the change begins in your spirit. Why? Because before coming to Christ, your spirit was basically unresponsive to anything and, 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 and kind of dead, basically. But now the spirit is there. In the truncated gospel, here's what happens. When you're tempted, like, okay, you've come to Christ. You signed a card. You got baptized. You, you're a Christian now. And your understanding is that you're justified. Like, you have Jesus cloth on. You know your destiny when you die. But now, in this truncated gospel, when you're tempted to self-medicate the pain or boredom of your life with drugs or meaningless screen time or shopping or your third or fourth or fifth drink, like you're tempted and then you're like this, man, I really shouldn't take that fourth drink, but I really want it. I really do. Oh, but wait a minute, I'm sitting in front of the window, there's people driving by, if people see me, that's going to be bad news. So, so, you don't take your fifth drink. Why? What will other people think? That's your motive. So that's one way of like dealing with sin. Like you're on the straight and narrow uh, for a reputation. Here's another way of dealing with sin. Man, I know I really shouldn't do this, whatever I'm tempted to do. And even though nobody can see me, I know that God sees me, 
And God's going to be really bummed if I do this thing. So because I want to please God, even though I really want to do this thing, I'm not going to do it. The desire is still really strong, but no, I'm not going to do it. Uh, because I'm living to an audience of one, so you don't do it. That's another way of overcoming sin. Uh, third, you know what? I'm forgiven anyway, so whatever. Uh, like, I know where I'm going already. I've got the Jesus cloth. I'm going to go ahead and sin anyway. I'll be fine. Like, the, where sin increased, grace increases more. Or the fourth way, and this may be most of you, you don't think about this stuff at all because you're just busy living, right? And so you sin a little bit, and then when you read these promises of abundant life or, or, living, or living water being a new creation, you don't feel any different than you ever did before you came to Christ, and so you're like this. Whatever, they mean something, but I, whatever they mean, that doesn't apply to me because I'm just a normal human and like, you know, abundant life. Yeah, that's for people who live in the desert, like the desert fathers and the monks and, you know, but not me. Listen, all of those are wrong. All of them miss the point entirely. Like, if your ethical construct is only based on fear of getting caught, you're setting yourself up for trouble. Or any of the others as well. Though you may still have some of those running through your being, none of them are the path to freedom. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, so that's the thing. I mean, I still have a little of this, uh, like, what will people think? I still have a little bit of this audience of one stuff. But it's not only what motivates me. Oh, okay. So, like, how do we get into this freedom? What makes it real? Here's the thing. Let's go back again. Uh, bad day at work. Your boss demoted you, and then you came out. Your car wouldn't start. You had to call AAA, and they, don't, they didn't come for two hours. And you got in your car, and the traffic was terrible, and a rock hit your windshield and cracked. And you got home, and the kids were crying. Your wife's mad at you. And, you know, you understand. It's like Monday, right? So... <laughs> Like, very hard, and now life is hard, and, and so you're tempted to self-medicate, whatever that means for you, whatever that is, you're tempted. But, but now, it's, here's the thing, what, where's your path to freedom? It's not that you don't want to get caught, it's not that God is watching you, it's not that you can do it anyway because you're forgiven. This is the deal. You're tempted, and now, if, like, as you begin to mature, something happens. This warning goes off, and the warning is this, Richard... Is that fourth drink really who you are? Is that you? And here's the answer for those who are new in Christ. What's the answer? Thank you. I was waiting for someone. Is, is that who we are in Christ? No. Is lust who we are in Christ? Is fear who we are in Christ? Is hatred who we are in Christ? Is division, pride? No, none of it. Look, you're a new creation, and so there resides within you nothing less than the person of Jesus. So now, when you're tempted, before there's ever a no to temptation, there's a yes to a new identity. Does this make sense? And it's the yes to the new identity that actually sets you free so that now it's not, it's not even really a no. You don't even want that. All of us in the room, I hope, have had this experience because it's a sign of maturity whereby you fell into sin, you did it, whatever it is, or you didn't do what you knew you were supposed to do. And, and so, and then... A minute later, or a day later, or a week later, you look at that person who did that thing, and, and then I hope and pray this happens to you. Your response is, that's not me. 
Has that happened to anyone in the room? That's not me. And here's the thing. That's the truth of the gospel. That is not you. Why? Because you're complete in Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, rooted and grounded in love. Christ has found a home in your heart, and the companionship with the indwelling Christ says this to you. You are loved. You are chosen. You are new. You are empowered. You are healed. You are filled. You are blessed. You are gifted. Go be who I've made you to be. That's growth in Christ. So we really need to learn this identity truth stuff if we're ever going to be set free. We have to understand who we are in Christ. And I found these identity truths in pastoral counseling situations to be a key for freedom for many people. People have been set free from sexual addiction addiction by understanding their identity in Christ. Free from alcohol by understanding their identity in Christ. Free from rage or temper, addiction to shopping, by, by understanding, that it all starts here. I'm new, I'm loved, I'm filled, I'm called, I'm gifted. When we're rooted and grounded in that identity, that identity begins to prevail. There's a guy who spoke to me between services. He says, uh, you know, I'm sober now for X number of time. And, and uh, when I began my journey of sobriety, my motivation was, what will other people think? Like I was motivated by fear of reputation. But now, he says, he says, what has set me free is my identity in Christ because now I'm like this. That drinking, that is not who I am. Boom. That's freedom, right? This is, I have a new identity. You must know your new identity. How do you know? You need to meditate. I don't mean like east, like empty meditate. I mean Psalm 1 meditate, which says this. In a world that's a desert, if you, if, you, if you meditate on who God says you are, like if you become rooted and grounded in love, Ephesians 3, 16 and 17, continually drawing upon the resources of Christ so that you see yourself as forgiven, deeply loved, made whole, healed, empowered. If you meditate, here's the promise, you'll be a tree, you'll be like a tree planted by a stream. That's why the redwood tree is here this morning. If you could just picture this redwood tree, even as we speak, drawing nutrients up from the soil through its roots, and the roots then continually giving birth to new life and new life and new life eventually someday uh, to propagate its own seeds and bear fruit. Why? It all begins with drawing upon life. That's where it starts. So you have new life in Christ, and, and you draw upon that life through meditation. Well, what does that mean? Well, I'll give you a link here. If you... And you can use your phone in church right now. If you text the word identity to 64600, then magically through things well beyond my capacity to understand, uh, all the identity truths of who you are in Christ will show up on your phone, right? And then, and then what I do, particularly if I'm dealing with a presenting problem, like a strong temptation or fear or anxiety or I'm overwhelmed... Then when I meditate in the mornings, as I, as I do, like I get up and I have coffee and I read my Bible, and then I go, I, I pick a few of those truths. Thank you, God, that I'm gifted. Like, I don't feel gifted, 
But it says there, oh, you've been given gifts. Thank you, God, that I'm gifted. Thank you that I'm called. Thank you that I'm loved unconditionally. Thank you that I'm your son. Thank you that I'm adopted. Thank you that I share in your nature. And as I begin to thank God over and over again, and, and days during the weeks during the months during the years, lo and behold, not only do I now believe it, but I begin to what? Feel it. Do you understand what I'm saying? And now as I begin to feel it, that new identity prevails. And when I'm tempted, everything in me shouts, wait a minute, Richard. Drunkenness is not who you are. Anger is not who you are. Fear is not who you are. Anxiety is not who you are. You are peace and hope and righteousness in the Holy Spirit who lives in you. New identity. That's it. That's how you... All growth begins there. Spirit. But you're not just spirit. You have a soul. So then the question is, what is your soul and how does your soul grow? And here's the thing. Your soul grows by submitting to your new identity in Christ. That's how your soul grows. I will read for you 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through 14, so that you can kind of wrap your mind around this a little bit. 1 Corinthians 2, so I'm just turning in my Bible to that passage. It says here, we have received this, uh, not the spirit of the world, verse 12, but the spirit who is from God. So we have this new spirit. We've received the spirit. So that, because of the Spirit, we may know the things God has freely given us. So now you have this new Spirit, and this Spirit now is teaching you all the riches that you have, your new identity in Christ. But then, verse 14, here's the problem. The natural man does not accept these things. Now, what does that mean, the natural man? Well, in the Greek language, the, the word natural is psychike, from which we get the word psyche, from which we get the profession, what? Take a wild guess. Psychology, right? And so the psukike the, the, is, the, is, the, is the soul, which is essentially your personality, which though I don't have time to develop it fully, I'll just say right now, is kind of your mind and your will and your emotions. Like before your body ever presents anything, what your body only presents is the fruit of your thoughts, uh, feelings, and actions. Does that a little bit make sense? Thoughts, feelings, actions. Thoughts, mind, feelings, emotions, actions, will, right? So uh, that natural man, your soul, doesn't really accept this new identity. Now, why would your soul not accept the new identity? Well, here's why. Because before you came to Christ, your, your spirit was kind of unresponsive. We'd, like, you could say it's in a torpor state, like, like a bear in winter, or it's in hibernation, or if you're a strict Calvinist, you say it's dead. doesn't matter. It's unresponsive, okay? Your spirit's unresponsive. So what's running your life? What's shaping who you are? Your soul completely. And your soul is this weird, funky blend of beauty and brokenness. And so in, in the story that is your life, there's brokenness that is shaping your soul in unhealthy ways. So for, for example, in my life, um, I'm born... And then my, my birth mother gives me away immediately for adoption and then feels bad and then bring, wants me back. And then um, after six months, I'm too much for her and she gives me up again. And then, and then I grow close to my dad, not to my mom, and then my dad dies, my adoptive dad. No wonder I'm a mess, right? Like I have these huge abandonment issues that are rooted in my story. Does that kind of make sense? So we all, 
Like, I don't share that for therapy this morning. I just say it because the point is we all have such things. We all have stories in our lives of brokenness. I kind of learned to, I kind of began to believe over time that um, nobody's there for me. So I'm going to preemptively avoid the pain of rejection. How? By not letting any of you in. And then, you know, if you don't like me, I say, whatever, you're, you were stupid anyway, right? Like, and and that's, my, that's my coping mechanism. It's super unhealthy, right? But it's like that's, for years, that's normal. Then the Spirit of God comes, and the Spirit wants to actually run the show. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12, we received <clears throat> the Spirit of God. That's the good news, but the challenge is verse 14, this, the sukike, the, the natural man, doesn't receive the Spirit of God. So if I can use kind of different language here, the soul doesn't buy the new paradigm of being united with Christ and granted all of Christ's capacity for healing and transformation. Why? Because that's a demotion to the soul. The soul, for your entire life until you came to Christ, your soul was senior management. That's the way I'm going to say it. So you can imagine coming in one day to your office at work, you're, you're a manager of some, some sort, and then, uh, you know, uh, the boss calls you in, and he says, hey, uh, Matt, you know, I got news for you. I, I know, you know, you think you're killing it at work, but the bad news is I found a better ferry engineer, and he's harder working, and he's smarter, and he's brighter, and he's going to change the whole ferry system, and so now all I want you to do is keep cars from falling off the back. You just stand back there and keep the cars from falling off. Like, you've been what? Demoted. Do you understand? Who likes, who in the room loves demotion? Nobody. Remember that song by the Who, Meet the New Boss? Do you guys know it? Some of you do. Meet the New Boss. And then what's the next line? Does anyone know? Just like the old boss. And the, so here's the gospel. Meet the new boss, what? Better than the old boss. Do you understand? Because now Christ wants to take over. And this is what it means, Galatians 5, walk by the Spirit. Because if you let the Spirit run the show, the soul now will begin to, to display Jesus rather than fear and, and lust and greed and all the coping mechanisms. You now begin to look more and more and more like Christ to the extent that you allow Christ to run the show, walk by the Spirit. Because the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and all that other good stuff. And the fruit of the flesh is, listen, jealousy, fear, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissension, factions, everything you see every night on the news, right? So why, like, why would you want to live in the flesh when you have a new spirit? Here's why, because your soul's like this. No, I want to run the show. I've been senior management for 20 years or 25 or 40 so this is, this is the challenge. So now I'm saying the soul grows by learning to submit to the new boss, learning to walk in the Spirit. Now, then you ask the question, I hope you do, well, how does the soul learn to submit? Like, how does that happen? And I've got the answer for you, but it's pretty complex. So take out some paper or something. Listen, how, like, how does the soul learn to submit to the Spirit? You want to know how? Here's the answer. Are you ready? You ready? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell me. How does a soul learn to submit to the Spirit? Suffering. You're welcome. <laughs> That's how. It says it in the Bible. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 9, says that we, like, look, in this moment, you're enduring various trials, 
But the trials will result in the, the transformation, the deliverance, if I can say it that way, the deliverance of your what? Your soul. In other words, you, when you suffer in your soul and your soul tries to take control, God has so ordered the world that when you try and control your own soul, it just doesn't work, right? And so the suffering in our lives brings us to the end of ourself in some realm of the soul, and then the soul begins to submit to the spirit. Does this make a little bit of sense? So, so uh, for example, when, when my dad dies, suddenly all this stuff about, you know, abandonment and rejection, I, I end up having to deal with it in a new profound way, and Jesus becomes my best friend, and I learn how to trust in Jesus. So, so death is the suffering that contributed to the transformation of the soul. Another thing for me that can, contributes to transformation of the soul is in my soul, my personality, in my personality, I'm very rural. So, of course, God sends me to, to the big city, of course, because like it's here, I can't run the show very well here. I don't have what it takes. I'm not city material, right? Like as someone said to me once when I was over in Bellevue, Richard, you're just not Bellevue. Go home. <laughs> Literally, that's what they said. You're just not Bellevue. You're, you're right. Like in my soul, I don't have what it takes. And yet here I am. In my soul, I'm house church. So of course God puts me in a church with six locations and 3,500 people. Why wouldn't he? I mean, this is, this, is, this is how God transforms us. God puts us in places beyond our capacity, beyond our comfort zone, so that we begin to say, I can't do it. And as soon as I say, I can't, Jesus is right there waiting, saying, I never said you could. But now you begin to trust me and I live in you and I will be in you what you could never be on your own. I, by nature, you know, love wool and denim and I'm never giving those up <laughs> because it's irrelevant, right? So that, that's how that works. So, 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 so here we go. You learn to walk by the Spirit by believing that the new boss is not the same as the old boss, but the new boss is better than the old boss. And therein is life. I'm learning to say yes to the Spirit of God in my life. And then, when the Spirit begins to transform your mind, will, and emotions, your personality, your soul, that transformation begins to present itself now in your body. So that's the third thing. Your body is transformed. Really? Our body's transformed? Like, I thought I could come to Christ and be transformed in my spirit and my soul and, and still live on... Coke and sleep one hour a night and eat pizza for every meal. No, your body is transformed. Well, let me explain. Romans 8, 11. The Spirit of Christ, right, now that, he lives, now that Christ lives in you, the Spirit of Christ, listen, gives life to your mortal body. Your mortal, what's your mortal body? Uh, this is your mortal body. It's your mortal body. So God is in the business not of just transforming your spirit, by moving it from this torpor state to fully alive, united with Christ, your soul transforming your mind, will, emotions, so you have a new boss, your soul submitting to your spirit. God is also now interested in transforming your body so that in your body, you actually display nothing less than the risen Jesus. Of course, your body's broken. Of course, there are physiological things in our body that may need you know, medications or whatever. I'm not saying no to any of that. What I'm saying here is that, is that uh, the promises of God include not only the transformation of our personality, but ultimately the transformation of our body. So that our food choices, our sexual choices, our, our, 
our very being is transformed. I'll give you a couple of examples. In a world of insomnia, and that is our world, by the way, here's what God says, Psalm 4.8, David. I will both lie down and sleep well, <laughs> for you, Lord, make me dwell in safety. In a world of insomnia, you know what God's promise is? Sleep. Like, how radical is that? In this culture, dramatic. It's dramatic. I'm offering you, in your physiological body, peace. In other words, uh, less cortisol coursing through your veins as a result of fear and anxiety. Less cortisol. Why? Because uh, the peace of Christ, Philippians 4, is now guarding your heart. And your heart isn't just, uh, by the way, uh, spiritual. You have a cardio. You have a heart. Meditate on that. The peace of Christ guarding your what? Your heart. Who? What does that look like? I'll give you one example. I spoke in January 2016 at a conference for um, camp directors on the East Coast. So all these, you can picture the dining room, a bunch of camp directors, right? And you know camp directors, if you try to imagine how they are dressed, they all look like REI commercials. They're, they're just all, you know, decked out in, in the latest merino wool and whatever, all the yeah, Gore-Tex, all that stuff. Except for one, there's one table, caught my eye, guys in old, old plaid flannel shirts, which today, they'd be hipsters, right? But, <laughs> but then, like it wasn't in, old plaid shirts, long, long beards, the women all wearing dresses with head coverings. So I was like this. I know where I'm sitting, and I went over to that table, and I sat with these, and I ate every meal with the, these Mennonites who run a camp in upstate New York. And so at every table, people were talking about politics because there was in the air, you could feel it, a great deal of fear, a great deal of anger. I would perhaps say nothing's changed, right? Fear, anger, anxiety, families can't even talk to each other anymore. We're so deeply polarized. Everybody's really, really mad. And so I said to these guys, I said, so... Do you guys talk politics there at your camp? Like, and what is, what's your opinion? I'm going around the table. This guy, he just laughed. He says, he, th- he says, do you think we even care who's president? He said, look, we've been doing the same thing since Reagan was on the, and this was his words, on the throne. Since Reagan was on the throne, we've been through, you know, Reagan and Bush and Clinton and Bush and Obama and now this guy. It's all fine. I said, Really? He said, yeah, it doesn't, nothing change, it doesn't change our calling. Why would we worry? Oh, yeah. He says, this is what we do. We get kids from the inner city of New York, and they come to upstate New York, and we put them on the most terrifying ropes course in all of New York State, and it changes their lives, and we introduce them to Jesus, and we love them, and we funnel them back into churches. We've been doing it for 30 years. We're changing the world. Why do we care who's president? That's peace. Many of us are living with this capital V victim mentality because the news cycle is assaulting your soul. Get over it, man. You have a calling and get on with your calling and therein is peace. Philippians 4, 6 and 7. Like peace in your body. Oh, watch this. Freedom in a world of addictions, John 8, 32. If the sun will make you free, you'll be free indeed. Well, what does that mean? Not just free from anger, free from stupid food choices. 
Free, free from destructive sexual choices. Free from every form of addiction. And where does that show up? Shows up in your body. So you become then a person that is spoken of in Ecclesiastes where the guy is musing saying, yeah, it's a terrible world and nothing lasts. So therefore, my conclusion, love your wife and pour oil on your head. Which means what? Look, live a life of joy now in your body. Why? Because that's your calling. You are a testimony of a better world than this one. So quit worrying about this one and become the testimony of the better one. Amen? Amen. I mean, that's, our, that's it. That's what God's calling us to do. So that in the end, we're invited then to enter fully into God's story. Romans chapter 12, which says this. First of all, dedicate your body as a living sacrifice to God. And then you begin to use your, find your gift, your spiritual gift, and use it. And when you live this way, watch this, your life becomes a giant yes rather than a million no's. And the prevailing paradigm of the, of, of the Christian life, in my opinion, in much of evangelicalism right now, the prevailing paradigm is no. Look what God's against. Look what God hates. Look, 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 look how bad you are. But don't worry, you got Jesus cloth on. So just keep struggling and help other people struggle too so that when they die, they go to heaven with you. Look, but it's no. And here's Jesus. Yes. Yes to a brand new spirit. Energized with nothing less than the risen Jesus now living in you. Yes to a transformed soul. So that your mind, your will, emotions all display Christ and display Christ through what? Hello, your body. Body, soul, spirit, transformed. Amen? Amen. Father, may this be our story. And my prayer is now that you'll show every one of us in the room a next step to take. For some of us, it's being grounded in our identity in Christ. It's meditating on those truths. For others of us, it's, it's understanding how the brokenness of our story in our soul, how that brokenness is changing us so that we are now living out from the power of the Spirit, relinquishing control. And for some of us, you're speaking to us about a habit in our body, our relationship with alcohol, our relationship with food, our relationship with sex, our relationship with our credit card. Just speak, Father. And may every one of us take a next step. And we'll thank you for the ongoing journey of transformation that awaits us. Praying in the name of Christ. Amen. I'll just add now as we close, if you're a parent of anyone from fifth grade down, right now, I'm going to invite you to get up and go with Chris. He's right at the back there. And you're going to go up to classroom A so you can hear about the amazing things that God is doing in uh, children's ministry here and participate. You won't want to miss that. So if everybody stands, if you're a parent, would you go now? And then uh, the rest of us will stay in here, continue to worship. There'll be prayer team members available as you articulate your next step, growth in Christ.